0: Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, and one of the largest advertising agencies in the world. Rory is also a renowned author and columnist, focusing on the unseen opportunities on consumer behaviors that lead to enormous effects on the decisions people make. Rory, it's great to have you in the studio with me today. I've been looking forward to the conversation enormously. You've had such a really interesting career over a long time at Ogilvy, and of course, an interesting journey in leadership as well. You're vice chairman there, and you've mentioned in one of the podcasts that I've listened to before that you actually wouldn't suit the CEO role, which was incredibly interesting. So I'd I'd love to hear a bit about the journey that you've had so far and how you perceived your growth in leadership up to this point.
1: Okay. Um Yes. No, I, when I say that, if you put me in a managerial role, I'm the vice chairman for a reason. Okay. And partly I'm the vice chairman through choice because it's one of those rare, slightly vague job titles, which allows you to write your own job description to a degree. And because by nature, I'm a little bit of a dilettante and a kind of, I'm instinctively curious. The fact that I don't have a tightly defined job description, it's simply effectively what i attempt to do is add value in ways that it's difficult for people with a defined job description to do mm. by exploring opportunities longer term considerations you know building interesting relationships with people who might make very valuable business partners that kind of thing mm. i'm far better suited to that role temperamentally than a role of uh, you know command and control uh, which is not in my instincts anyway uh, i mean there are two it's always very interesting by the way there are two aspects to Human status seeking. There's a great book called I think the Status Game, mm-hmm. which I recommend to everybody, mm-hmm. um, because you realise there is this unseen force mm-hmm. that motivates people to an extraordinary degree. In many ways, more than money does. In fact, uh, people respond to incentives is the great economic mantra, and they tend to assume those are economic incentives. But in many cases, they're not. They're social status, or some forms of status incentive. Mm-hmm. And what makes humans interesting? Don't th- know whether it makes them unique. But in other primates, you tend to have a dominance hierarchy, and humans are slightly unusual because they still retain, and indeed dictatorial countries still retain, a very, very strong dominance hierarchy, where it's all about the exercise of power. But alongside this, we have a prestige hierarchy, which is a little more nuanced, shall we say, but it's probably, in most organizations, it's actually the quest for prestige which is perhaps more important and something that you want to nurture far more than the, the lust for dominance, mm. if you like. Mm. And I, you know, I, I always argue that you know, a company that needs to be micromanaged isn't a successful business to begin with, because if you, know, if you need basically to be you know, bossing everybody around and micromanaging every single last part of detail, what you haven't got is a really successful business ecosystem. It's a bit like that very interesting point which some people have made, which is that um, most people responded to Darwin and the theory of evolution as an idea that it was a rejection of God. And a few other people said, no, 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 it doesn't mean there isn't a God. It just means that God isn't a micromanager. (laughs) Okay. That actually, you don't want to design every single beetle to a huge level of detail. What you want to do is create a beetle which automatically survives, grows, and thrives by its own nature, Mm. rather than by being ordered around and by being designed, you know, every last cell, okay, at the cellular level. And so, you know, we spend probably, I'm I'm very uncomfortable with those blasted um, uh, organic, you know, what are those charts, those pyramid charts, okay, X reports to Y. And people I work with are completely unhappy. They're completely unhappy unless you have an absolutely clear-cut reporting lines chart going all the way up. And I go, yeah, that's, that's fine. Okay, A lot that's- of people crave clarity, though. No? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, you see, here's the problem, okay? That looks at the world top down, okay? Most value in organizations is created either bottom up or horizontally. And actually, what happens horizontally in your organization, in other words, the kind of, I suppose, the formation of you know, allegiances, alliances, cooperation that happens spontaneously and horizontally, Or indeed, you know, the important idea, can the important idea make it from the customer facing person at the bottom to the chief executive? To what extent are chief executives actually informed by what happens in their call center? That would be a much better way of doing business than looking at it through this kind of a command and control and who do I have to report to, who provides me with my key performance indicators, where does my bonus come from, Etc. Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. That stuff is kind of managerial mm-hmm. and it's, it's not it's, – by the way, I don't think you can avoid it completely. I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting that. But the focus we pay to that – as distinct from the value that's actually created spontaneously and generated through natural voluntary collaboration. Mm. That seems out of whack to me.
0: There's a myriad of ways of organizational success. 37 years at organization
1: is not that common these days, as I'm sure. you're No, and in overt- the advertising industry, it's vanishingly rare. It's less rare at Ogilvy mm. in that we've had a long history of promoting f- internally from within. And there are other organizations which have a strong tradition of that. Um, so we had that tradition which by the way makes it worth staying around okay. because uh what the problem with importing leadership from outside time after time is that you can't really build up social capital within an organization mm. because as soon as the leadership is replaced they're replaced by people who have basically have no idea who you are mm. okay mm. and so you know, I think I don't think those two things—the fact that a lot of people at Ogilvy stay for a long time, and the fact that um, we tend to promote internally—I don't think those are unrelated by any means. Um, first of all, there's a reason to stay because you might get promoted from within. Yep. But secondly, also there's a reason to stay because you, the people at the top, have 15 years experience of who the hell you are. Yeah. Okay, which gives you a certain sort of freedom mm. because it removes, I think, the the over-quantification problem, Mm. which is you're only as good as your last quarter, you're only as good as your last year, okay? And that really worries me in business, the extent to which what we're doing, quantification, obsessive quantification, particularly repeated obsessive quantification, I'm not suggesting you don't measure anything ever, okay, Um, is a hallmark actually of a low-trust culture, Mm And what the spreadsheet did to some extent and the invention of all these other quantification tools and in many cases spurious or unreliable metrics is it effectively took what were high-trust, high-cooperation cultures and imposed on them the conditions and methodologies of a low-trust culture Mm. where in a high-trust culture, if you do something valuable, okay. Now, let's say I meet somebody and... you know and then I take them out to dinner and there's a business expense and there is absolutely no gain okay from that whatsoever for two years and then three years later they're a prospective client okay now in a high trust culture, people would acknowledge the fact that not everything I do has an immediate quantifiable outcome but on balance it is worth doing those things to the extent to which over a five or six year period, two or three of them pay off significantly. Mm-hmm. Now, in a low-trust culture, if you didn't actually turn that bit of business into a client uh, within the space of three months, then effectively you have done nothing and you should be gotten rid of immediately through through low performance. And so this quantification thing is, I mean, the extent to which it appeals to that thing you mentioned earlier, which is people's love of certainty, because people have a natural aversion to any kind of subjective judgment or any kind of tacit knowledge in business decision making, mm. but that's throwing away in a way half of your evolutionary legacy, because a small part of our evolutionary legacy is the ability to you know build rockets and process spreadsheets and you know provide market by market growth comparisons. That's some of our brain, very large part of our brain is actually evolved to making pretty good decisions to problems which are really intractable through conventional logical or mathematical means.
0: Mm.
1: And so the obsession with what can be quantified quantification bias which you see almost everywhere this this thing of with data you know we almost don't need to make decisions anymore the only problem is the only decisions you'll be capable of making if you can only make data driven decisions is actually a very narrow subset of the decisions you need to make Mm. to create an effective organization. So perfectly worthwhile activities, which are, for example, okay, I'll give you an example of this very simply in the marketing sphere. It's much, much harder and slower to measure an effect on consumer or customer retention than it is to measure effects on customer acquisition. Now, in many cases, customer retention is a more profitable activity, than customer acquisition. They're both necessary, obviously. But with retention, you know, the success of doing something lovely on a call center win-back program, okay, may only be measurable over five or six years, by which time the person who commissioned the work has probably left. No one's prepared to wait that long, okay? Also, it's simply harder to prove because in between the what you might call the intervention and the consequences lots of other things have happened whereas the bottom of the acquisition funnel is kind of a world entire of itself okay you know so you get immediate results okay the basket abandonment rate is down 25% okay and the conversion to sales are up by so and so well done everybody give yourself a bonus you've done something which is provably valuable now by the way that's great I have no no objection to optimizing the bottom of the funnel. I'll go even further. I'll say that actually the bottom of the funnel is the thing you should optimize first, Mm. because obviously if you can't convert, there's no point in doing a wonderful brand advertising campaign if all it means is that 10 million people turn up at your website and decide there's nothing they want, okay, or they can't be persuaded to buy anything, or they get to the blasted checkout basket and they decide, ooh, this credit card thing is too weird for me, too clunky. Exactly. So it's it's good to start there, but you've got to be able, you, you've got to have the power to work your way up. And the extent to which, by the way, in the absence of better information, we use bad proxies is, I think, particularly acute in your business. Because I, I had a friend who worked for Goldman Sachs. He got a double first in maths in Cambridge. He was a fair mathematical prodigy. Okay, But I asked him once, I said, when you were looking for new jobs, how important was your degree class and the fact that you got a maths degree three, five, six, eight years on? And his response, as I remember it, is he said, it's a bit like a half-life, you know, (laughs) a bit like radioactive decay, in that it probably never becomes completely irrelevant. You're always going to be a tiny bit better off with a Cambridge maths degree, but it decays pretty quickly. Mm. After three or four years, they're much more interested in who you've worked with, what you've done, than they are about what you happen to do at university. And so the reason we get obsessed about university degrees is because in a very unrepresentative point of your career, which is the beginning, it's the only thing people have to choose by mm. or one of very few things. You then get this sort of American thing where everybody has to do some like weird voluntary work and they have to write a kind of personal mission statement and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But actually, you don't know very much about these people. In fact, an interview probably tells you quite a lot. But, but if you need something absolutely on paper to limit who you interview... What do you choose? Will you choose something which is pretty arbitrary? Which is, I mean, David Ogilvie dropped out of. I mean, actually, I think he dropped out of Oxford. He was a. He failed to graduate. He didn't have a degree. Okay. Some of the best people I've worked with in our business have got thirds, or they basically got kicked out, or whatever, because that's the kind of mentality we kind of. Cherish in a way, and there's and even people like Google went and researched it and found there wasn't much correlation between uh, there wasn't much correlation between degree class and subsequent performance. It was being used simply as a convenient two one and above. That's right. Okay, a convenient, seemingly logical discriminator for which there's no actual corroborating evidence. And actually, um, fascinatingly, Deirdre McCloskey, a very brilliant economist argues that 25% of the American economy is basically sweet talk. Yep. It's getting people to do something which, left to their own devices, in the absence of that persuasive charm, yep. they wouldn't do. Bill Gates came to exactly the same conclusion because, naturally, as a bit of a nerd, okay, mm. oh, I don't think he would mind me saying that, okay, he, he assumed that all business problems were just a problem of raw IQ. Mm. You put enough bright people on it, they'll solve the problem. And very rapidly, he came to the conclusion that particularly in field, not only in fields like marketing and sales, uh, more so perhaps in marketing and sales than in coding, okay, but even then, uh, EQ counts. I would say that most really significant business breakthroughs, and actually quite a few medical breakthroughs, are actually a marketing triumph where history is rewritten to make it an engineering triumph. So a very, very shrewd friend of mine, a guy who's been a huge influence over my life. He was a mature student, and we'll come back to mature students a little later. Right. He was kind of polymath and um, a serial entrepreneur of a brilliant kind. And he said to me when I last met him in Oxford, a guy called Ray Fouke, he said, I've, I've come to the conclusion in my life that actually the success of anything is more down to your ability to sell it than it is to your, down to your ability to create it. So let's take an example. Okay, a very early example. Uh, James Watt vents the steam engine, okay? Fantastic thing, goes and takes it to mine owners because it can effectively drain mines more efficiently than horses can. And he's there talking to all these people about, you know, kind of bore, stroke, length, and cubic capacity of the cylinders or whatever whatever you talk about if you talk about steam engines. And he realizes that they don't give a shit. Okay. What they want to know as mine owners is how many horses do I no longer need to feed and maintain if I buy a steam engine? So Watt himself goes off, marketing piece of genius, okay, and creates the horsepower as a measure of power. Because you go in and you go, and now instead of talking about, yeah boiler capacity or, you know, your flues, okay, uh, you basically say to the guy, well, uh, you go, um, how many horses can I get rid of if I buy one of these things? Well, he says, if you buy a 20-horsepower engine, you can get rid of, actually, it's 60, okay, because you had three shifts. But you can get rid of, it does the work of 20 horses and a 40-horsepower steam engine does the work of 40 horses. Mm. Bing, you've got mm. the sale. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting that was decisive. I will say that Jobs was a marketer, not a technologist. Mm. Okay, mm. In fact, the technologists within Apple didn't like him very much. There are loads of wonderful reports like, um, uh, what does Steve even do like he can't even code? Okay, <laughs> And in the launch of the iPod, uh, which was actually, in a sense, the really decisive Apple in- invention, mm. because the iPhone was effectively an iteration of that. Yep. Okay. Um, I was actually, I was around at the time, and I was on the Apple fanboy websites, okay, with the real geeky Apple nutters, you know, the cosplay Apple enthusiasts, (laughs) as it were. And there were all these comments like, just what the world needs, another MP3 player, okay, because they were looking at it in terms of what it did and its specifications, not in terms of how it felt to use it. And then we have this problem with high speed. I wrote a piece in The Spectator saying, look, High speed, too, is a totally misconceived idea. The route's wrong. The speed's wrong. Everything about it's bad. But it could still be a brilliant railway. What do you mean? Because those engineering considerations like speed and capacity have virtually no interest to the consumer or the end user, to use your tech language, okay? And they were the answer to the wrong question, which is how do we transport people in these numbers to this place at this speed? A marketer wouldn't have asked that question because they would have seen that as the wrong question, and they'd be right. What a marketer would have done, which is the question I asked as a marketer, is how can we produce a railway so brilliant that people feel stupid driving? One of the problems we have now is the principal target audience for the CEO is the investor community, its shareholders. It's those weird squawk box conversations. The only person who does that, okay? By the way, the people who do that well, the CEOs who communicate well, weirdly seem to be despised by other CEOs. Uh, So Richard Branson is always not really treated as a serious business figure because he actually generates publicity for free. Okay, And, And Elon, okay. Now, one thing about Elon is that you would, as a consumer, as a Tesla owner, you'd listen in on his investor calls. Yep. Okay. And I remember somebody said that the first question on called was something to do with tax rebates or incentives offered to opening factories Okay, in a particular state. And it was all to do with some convoluted part of the tax code. Now, fair, fair enough. It, it is quite important to the investors in Tesla. Okay, Now, Elon's response to that was, dude, that is just such a totally uncool question. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> And it is time we pushed back against this because the extent to which – I think there was a phrase, probably someone like um, Jack Welsh, who said, you know, I mentioned that pyramid at the beginning. What the pyramid does is it exists for the purpose of financial reporting upwards, and, the important, and it exists for the purpose of aggregation of information to present to the share owner. okay? Now, first of all, aggregated information, every time you aggregate information, the shareholder doesn't care. They just care about how much money did you make. They don't care about where it came from, okay? But actually, innovation comes from the bottom, doesn't come from the top. Every time you aggregate data, you lose information because the information is in the outliers. It's not in the averages. That's where the really interesting telling information lies. Secondly, when you organize a business with that kind of pyramid, which is why I'm so eager to sit outside that pyramid, you end up with an organization which, I think in the words of Jack Welch, basically has its tongue towards the CEO and its ass towards the customer. He would have said ass. It's ass towards the customer, okay? And I think that's a, you know, I think the financialization and the quarterly reporting bullshit. We have some clients like Unilever who refuse to do it. Mm-hmm. To me. They said, you know, if you want quarterly reports, find another company to invest in. Now, the extent to which it's driven short-termism, it's strangled innovation, it's strangled interesting areas of exploration because what the CEO is really looking for is a narrative to sell to the city not actually a way to create value for the customers hence why the well, tenure well, of most CEOs has gone down so much well, in terms of of, you', it, you it's you're one, one bad quarter away from right. oblivion absolutely yeah. 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 I mean, that is one defense of high CEO pay which mm. is a bit like high footballer pay mm. you know you don't last very long That's right <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> but it is it is an interesting question because I, I, if you ask me for my weirdest theory I've always had this weird theory that Milton Friedman when he created the idea of share you know the shareholder interest being technically it should be the share owner interest but it's it's in reality it's the shareholder interest okay what time frame what are they trying to do what is their appetite for long term growth and sustainable growth versus short term gains it's not even a coherent question to ask in the first place when you're recruiting people Please try and get people with a marketing mindset into businesses, even if that business does no conventional marketing. Mm. I'm not suggesting we are right, by the way. I'm not suggesting marketers are superior. Quite the opposite. I think a lot of the time we're totally fucking useless, <laughs> okay? But just occasionally, the ability to reframe something yeah. or to effectively represent or recontextualize something... But le- is the most valuable thing you can do, Roy Livermore? Well, let's
0: talk about it because um, in the sectors that we're in, life sciences sector, the yeah. the technology sector, there hasn't been a single CEO or firm that we that we work with from the biggest global powerhouses to the organisations yeah. that have got startup capital to be able to go and do something wonderful that don't talk about the big one of the biggest challenges that sits on them is talent, yeah. talent shortage. Where the hell do we get all these people? We've got great ideas, but it's very
1: very tough. Now, it won't surprise you, by the way, to know that I'm a flexible work devotee and I regard the people who are going. You, don't get me wrong. The people who say we need to actually retain some sort of office cohesion and co location uh, for purposes of both team bonding and serendipitous encounters, they're right. Okay, I'm not, I'm not one of these, you know, because there, there is a sort of extreme introvert school which goes, you know, lock yourself in a dark room, get on with your work, then stop at five o'clock. I, ex- I entirely accept the validity of that argument, okay, to an extent. I find it highly unlikely that there are people who have, whose work is so social that they don't have one day a week that they could do somewhere else. The point I'm making is that it's, it's deeply f- uh, Luddite in that it's failing to acknowledge that, first of all, if we experiment with different behaviors, we will get better at them. You also
0: mentioned something earlier, which I think we must talk about, especially when it comes to this talent shortage ideal mm. of the role that education could play with being able to sort some of this stuff out. Because yeah. the, the, the the old, and it's been in the news this week with the, the strikes in the automotive sector in the US, and everyone was terrified when automation started coming along that there'd be no more, a little bit like they're talking about now with AI fears.
1: It's woefully weighted towards. Uh, I mean, government attention is woefully weighted towards uh, things like uh, academic attainment, uh, you know, hypothetical problem solving, rather than real world solutions like apprenticeships. I've been involved in this fantastic program, which is designed to get people into the hospitality industry, and it seems to have created something like an advertising campaign. Uh, seems to have created literally two or three hundred thousand applications for effectively reframing a work in hospitality because it was seen as drudge work in fact it has huge virtues to it so you know you remember that phrase in peep show you know you got yourself get yourself a van a van's like an mba except you've also got a van right (laughs) and similarly i would argue that you know working in hospitality is a free degree in a sense, because you will learn the personal skills, the, you know, human foibles, you'll learn effectively, not not least also, when Woody Allen says, what is it, 95% of success is just showing up. Um, You know, you can be an absolutely brilliant person in all kinds of academic respects, but if you don't have trustworthiness, you don't have the social skills, you don't have the basic reliability, down to Pat. Mm. You'll be, a, if not a bad employee, you'll be one who finds it very difficult to convince other people in your group that you are a valuable member of the team. Uh, so you know, understanding how you know, in, in a sense. Uh, so this group called Hospitality Rising, uh, Ogilvy dev- d- donated some time to it. It's organised by a guy called Mark McCulloch, who's uh, based in Brighton, who's a kind of marketing guy with huge marketing chops in the a quick service restaurant and catering industry and is, you know, I'd say something of a genius. And what it did was it effectively said, look, we've got a problem here in recruitment. And actually it provided them with kind of advertising materials. Now the success of that was such that I said to him, it was, I'll be absolutely candid with you. It was much more successful than I expected. Um, I expected it to work. Most advertising actually kind of works. People are reluctant spending money on it because it's kind of intangible. It's not because it doesn't work. You know, but actually saving money, cost saving is not really a business strategy after a point. Growth is. Mm. And actually, if you're not prepared to spend money on marketing, you will end up trapped in a very, as a very efficient occupant of a particularly unappetizing niche. Mm. Okay. So this worked brilliantly well. I think it can work for other fields as well, which is now the problem. The great thing with hospitality is you can get into it at any stage of your life. And what, by the way, I'll say one thing about hospitality, which I won't say about Goldman Sachs, Right. The guy who's at the top of McDonald's is probably a more meritocratic guy than the guy who's at top at the top of Goldman Sachs, because you can in, in the hospitality industry you can start at the bottom and you can work your know, right to the top. Okay, it's genuinely meritocratic, and actually the fast food industry, you know, you can go from literally kind of. Uh, you know, the drive-through window to the boardroom in those organizations. I don't see that happening in banks much. The guy from the post room used to happen in advertising, by the way. Yeah. You know, there was a, there was a guy who literally, brilliant copywriter called Paul Burke, who applied to Abbott Mead Vickers because he thought they might have a van driving job, and he ended up as an absolutely fantastic copywriter. Mm. Now, I, I think that using the education system as a primary filter for job entry is extraordinarily inefficient and dangerous and wasteful of talent genuinely i mean advertising is particularly weird because you'll find a creative department or a planning department in advertising if it's any good will be a strange mixture of chin-stroking oxbridge types and people who basically you know kind of blag their way in but prove themselves to be brilliant I mean, you, you see that in Mad Men, okay? Mm. So uh, Peggy starts, I think, as a PA, doesn't she? Sure. And, and Don Draper, effectively, she's actually modelled on an Ogilvy employee whose name I've briefly forgotten. There's a female um, advertising copywriter in Ogilvy back in the '50s and '60s who wrote a book called Mad Women. Fun enough before Mad Men came out. And I, it's a criminal, I can't remember her name, but I'll. I'll it's Ooh, on the uh, Wikipedia yeah. page. And actually, the extent to which we have this narrow port of entry, where now people are saying things like, you know, well, it's not enough to have a degree, it's not enough to have a first-class degree, you've got to really have an, you know, master's. And that's that's what's called, effectively, Fisherian runaway. It's a it's Darwinian phenomenon like Peacock's Tales, where it's a zero-sum game driven by positional goods, comparative signaling. And really, if you're going to be brutal, the universities, particularly the Ivy Leagues, they're selling a luxury good whose value is its scarcity, they're not selling human capital improvement. Okay. Uh, I'd also make sure that companies had at least two or three different streams of entry to find talent that didn't come through uh, the conventional routes. And therefore, starting somewhere good gives you a lot more optionality than starting somewhere indifferent. In other words, being blunt about it, okay, if you've worked at Ogilvy for a few years, you won't find it that difficult to get another job in advertising, okay? If you've, I imagine if you worked at Goldman as my friend had for four years, it's not that other people are going, who's this asshole bothering me with his stupid CV, right? Yeah. And so therefore, if you start in the right place, not only are your prospects better of getting to the right place within your defined ambition, but the options available to you elsewhere are also much broader. And so what we've created is effectively a kind of hunger games for recruitment. Mm. You know, it's a bit like Highlander, you know, <laughs> well, there can only be one. Yeah. And actually, to me, I shouldn't say this, should I? But actually, for example, creative talent, business talent, entrepreneurial talent, inventive talent, marketing talent, even, I would argue, in some cases, scientific and medical talent. Okay, can be found all over the place. You can find inspiration everywhere. One of the best people we had at Ogilvy was, I think, talent spotted by a creative director who noticed her doing an incredibly good job of decorating the store windows in Selfridges or something. Mm. And he went in and said, this is brilliant. Who did this? Mm. Figuring that an ad agency could probably pay more than the retailer would. Mm. And he found the um, the woman who was doing it and immediately hired her, and, and she turned out to be utterly brilliant. Now, mm. I, I, I know her, um, uh, Vicki McGuire, if you, want, if you want the name plug. And I worked with her, and it was a total revelation. She was utterly brilliant. Okay. Now, I have no clue what qualifications she has, absolutely zero. I mean, you know, I don't know, she might, you know, she might have a first in 17th century French poetry from <laughs> uh, uh, Yale, and she's British, so less likely, uh, but she might have none at all. Doesn't bother me at all, mm-hmm. because her value is in effectively delivering an extraordinary kind of eye and judgment and imaginative mindset to any problem that you have to deal with.
0: So I wonder if 95% of businesses that still hide
1: the traditional way, they do so because that's the way it's always been done is what well, you're I mean, saying or it's okay choosing people employees by their degree class is a bit like choosing your wife by her shoe size but but if you but but i mean it is the idea is okay i don't have much information about these people uh therefore i have to attach an extraordinary amount of weight to the limited information i have which is their degree class which is purely a proxy okay and it has predictive value. By the way, you know, I, I would regard it as absolutely silly for ad agencies to go, oh, we don't want any Oxbridge graduates or we don't want any Russell Group University graduates. Mm. that would be daft. Mm. I mean, one of the advantages an ad agency has is that generally you can attract quite talented, well-educated people, and those people, by the scheme of things, are generally worth having around. But to make that the exclusive port of entry is abominable. Mm. I mean, it's really, really terrible. Mm.
0: Now, it's, it's incredibly interesting, Rory. And I think, um, again, the point of great discussions with interesting people that have done some good stuff is that we've got a very senior listenership. Yep. Uh, pe- people that are running companies, running organisations, and all the rest of it, those are in- individuals that we know from the data that, um, that, that,
1: that listen in. And I think that is quite thought-provoking know, stuff. But, but, by the way, I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's a huge cast of people who deserve to be probably much better paid. One of my arguments has always been, if you actually had really, really good measures of value creation, which may always be impossible, but AI might produce synthetic data on this, which might be of some interest. I don't know. But if you run a call center and nobody in your call center is paid £100,000 a year, and I mean that, okay, you're probably doing something wrong. If you have a UX department in your business, I I created a bit of a stir going to British Airways and saying that the the UX people should probably be the most highly paid people in the business because they're the people who literally, by changing the BA website – or by changing, for example, the scrapability of something with another price comparison website, they can make 10 million pounds for that organization in an afternoon. Mm. I think the behavioral science people should be quite well paid because they can do the same thing, but that's pure self-interest, okay? But I would say in your call center, you've probably had this experience, okay? You ring a call center and just occasionally, okay, you get someone who's genuinely brilliant. It's not that you come off the phone and go, well, that was all right. They finally solved that problem, okay? You go and go, That was actually incredible. You know, you're almost in a sort of post orgasmic state of bliss Mm. because they solved your problem so brilliantly. Okay. Um, And those people, I don't know what it is, but it's, if you deployed that really well, it wouldn't be difficult for those people to make, to create five or 10,000 in the right environment, to create five or 10,000 pounds worth of value in a day. And so one of the problems I have is that, you know, the extent to which preferment and advancement in organizations has become managerial the way to get on is to manage other people not to be a brilliant practitioner of your own craft but it's to take on some bloody management role and this is also i think there's a thing called pornell's iron law of bureaucracy which says that in any organization those parts of the uh, organization dedicated to the Furtherance of the bureaucracy will always grow at the expense of and get promoted at the expense of people dedicated to the function of the organization itself. Uh, you had that case where the pediatric consultants had to apologize to HR. Now, what, what used to happen is HR, okay, uh, finance to an extent, okay, HR, finance, procurement, all those ancillary disciplines, okay, first of all existed to support the practitioners of what the organization was doing, okay. And they've actually taken on a life of their own following Pornell's iron law of bureaucracy, which is people who are effectively, in a sense, it's very difficult to quantify their value and they don't actually perform operations or treat patients, okay? have grown by suddenly setting themselves up in judgment over the working patterns and behavior of the people who are actually doing the real work. Mm. So you have the finance department basically bullying the creative department in ad agencies. Well, the creative people are, you know, if you're going to have a bit of waste, have it in the creative department because they're doing the thing, okay, uh, that the organization is supposed to do. If, you, if you're going to have a bit of waste in a hospital, maybe having a doctor around the back having a fag is the best form of waste there is, okay? Right? <laughs> okay, I probably they, – they don't do that, do they? But, but <laughs> probably what not. I'm saying is that instead, a lot of what could have been – A lot of that money, I think, you have these ancillary functions which are now working the core function to death because that is the core function that's measured on its output, okay? Whereas the ancillary functions seem to have grown without actually being exposed to any adequate scrutiny. Now, I'm going to make a a little caveat here. Really good finance people, really good procurement people, okay? Really good HR people are really good. Okay, They make a huge difference. They focus on something absolutely specific and they can be an absolute game changer. Unfortunately, my prediction is those organizations are going to degrade under the lack of adequate scrutiny. They're going to grow, become bureaucratic, acquire powers they don't deserve because they've got all the free time. The doctors are actually like Performing surgery. They're too busy to get involved in internal politics or, you know, or or nonsense like that. Whereas these people in ancillary functions can create their own work. Now, okay, let me tell a hundred year old story, all right, which I think has some bearing. My aunt was a doctor, and she was a doctor in the 1960s. And at the time, in about 1965, a very eminent surgeon somewhere in Wales was driving home very late after an operation. And was so tired that he crashed his car and died. And my aunt's comment in something like 1968 was, well, of course, 20 years ago, he would have had a chauffeur. So someone would have driven him home and he, he would have slept in the back of the car. Okay. Now that in some ways is a quite an efficient use of resources. Okay. You have the surgeon doing surgery, chauffeur driving car. Okay. Now the question you could ask is over the last 60 years, what's happened to the chauffeur? And the answer is, the person who was a chauffeur is now a hospital administrator, and he's probably bossing the surgeon around. Now, why I think this matters is an anthropological thing, which is that the core tribe in an organization should be the people who do the thing the organization is for. You know, in Tesco, that's probably store management, basically. Okay, right? The central tribe, the tribe who dispensed the prestige status as distinct from the dominant status, the prestige should reside in how good you are at doing the job for which the organization exists in some shape or form. Mm. And if you look at the historical way in which it used to work with medicine is you kind of had a guy who was a bit of a, in Goldman Sachs, they call it a rabbi, right? You'd have a bit of a mentor. There'd be a senior bloke who go, you work for me and help me out. I've got your back. What now happens is instead of having a medical team under now by the way, there were lots of occasions I think where this turned quite toxic i'm not I'm not suggesting for a second okay that it's perfect, but when it works well, it can work very very well. I think in some cases it was probably abusive, exploitative, all other kinds of things so you know i'm not I'm not suggesting we we, we can simply revert to the status quo ante without doing anything else mm. okay. Now what happens? Of course, you don't get a team because everybody's apportioned by some rotor, but using some software from good, you know, resources or whatever. I don't know what department would do that. Okay, and actually, you look at something like academia. Okay, the growth in in the growth in administration in an academic department is absurd, and so this distortion. There's a great thing by there's a fantastic, uh, a fantastically famously nasty American businessman who bought some massive distribution shipping container company. And he described the effect. I think it's on YouTube, and his name is, like, Carly Khan. And it's called 13 Floors of People Doing Nothing. It, there were these 13 floors, literally. He bought this business, and there were 13 floors of office space in Manhattan. And every now and then, he is the owner, the new owner of the company, wanted to go and talk to the guy who is somewhere like, you know, Alabama, okay, who actually ran the shit and they seemed incredibly eager for him not to meet this man which increased his uh, his eagerness to meet this man all the more and finally gets down to this guy who's in alabama you can just imagine the type right okay he's an ex marine okay and he basically runs the whole show and eventually he asked this guy he said look 13 floors of people in new york what do they actually do and the Marine said i've been meaning to ask you the same question because he said i have absolutely no idea and they were publishing reports they were sharing you know spreadsheets with each other they were passing powerpoint decks they were doing interesting theoretical you know uh, operations i'm sure they had a large hr finance procurement function okay but actually this guy was doing it all effectively and he actually tells the story that he got rid of these 12 floors or 13 floors of people and nothing happened i mean literally nothing and now You can't be a kind of mentor to staff because you don't have any control over what they're paid, when they're promoted, what happens to them, because all of that suddenly, it used to be your decision supported by someone in a different department. They would help you make it happen. And increasingly, you have to basically, there is nobody in a business who can make a decision on their own anymore because uh, effectively, there is no decision that can be taken without like finance sign-off or HR sign-off or procurement sign-off. So the ability to actually take interesting original actions, which contributes a lot as a form of kind of unintended experimentation, that never happens. Mm. But it also means that you can't really operate by the standard dynamic of kind of human tribal instinct. You know, part of that system depended on giving a degree of autonomy to the guy on the top who could say, I know we've had a bad quarter, but I'm going to look after you here. Now, actually, the relationship, I can't blame people. To be honest, part of working from home in the U.S., part of flexible working is actually an unspoken strike. Partly and rightly because they only get two weeks paid vacation, which is barbarous. I mean, literally, I, I mean, I, I regard that as the most horrific thing. Um, but secondly, also, because um, everybody goes, well, you know, you, you know, how committed are you? Well, commitment's a two-way street. And the relationship with employees has become increasingly transactional. You're only one bad quarter away from elimination. Don't expect people to commit to you in the long term. If your only commitment to them is to employ them uh, for only as long as it becomes slightly non-awkward to do so. I mean, when I, when I got fired from Ogilvy, I was a account person at the beginning. I got fired. There was a guy in um, the client service who tragically died young recently called Dan Gipple. Who basically just looked after me for six months he said oh, i'll put you on my payroll for six months you can come and do a bit of work for me i was eternally grateful to that guy he gave me my break really and without him there would have you know a few other people as well in the creative department who supported my move there but you suddenly realize none of those things could ever happen now because it's all it's all like reduced to an algorithm or best practice or our new policy on mm. and a lot of what people enjoy about work is actually what i call placebo autonomy placebo autonomy is like choosing which hotel you stay in when you go on a business trip within reason okay i'm not suggesting you pitch up at the most expensive hotel in town but actually going i think you know i think i prefer to go this way i'm going to pay i'm going to pay for first class rail travel because i want to work on the train and look if i buy an advance ticket it's only 20 quid more right that's the kind of stuff which actually humans really really crave and yet it's been increasingly driven out Now, I know it sounds trivial, you know, uh, there are no company cars anymore. There are no perks anymore. Everything is kind of reduced to this sort of Calvinistic, transactional form of employment. And they're going, well, I don't think it's strange because Gen Z don't seem really committed to their long-term future. Well, all that's happened is that Gen Z have noticed reality and responded accordingly. Okay? Mm. You know, company cars, I know it sounds stupid, but they were kind of a mark that we're kind of invested in you at least to the extent of the three-time uh, horizon yeah. of giving you a car. If you if you only wanted a bit of job security, you'd go and ask for a company car that was like pink because they'd know they wouldn't be able to fob it off on anybody else. <laughs> and then if they did fire you, they'd be stuck with the car. Yes. That was always a clever yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. thing. But, but what I'm saying is that it was a two-way street. They, they practiced commitment in the shape of training and upfront investment and things. You know, and, and they gave you a bit of autonomy. You then basically said, okay, well, my, you know, my five year life plan is to stay here. And you can't make a five year life plan to stay in a place if you know you're only one awkward. And by the way, I'm not talking about losing your job because the company's losing money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. If the company's losing money or, you know, totally hopeless, you should expect to lose your job. But I'm talking about like half a percent below some convoluted target that's been plucked out of the air in the first place. And it's kind of bullshit. And so five things, by the way, anybody listening to this, always bear in mind this. The neuroscientist Kiwi, funnily enough, called David Rock. And um, he uh, he has a model. And he's a neuroscientist. And his model, which I think is really useful for anybody, if you want to do the what you might call the TikTok version of this talk, it's called SCARF. And it's five things people really, really care about that economics doesn't understand, business doesn't understand very well, that never get talked about very much. And the five things, it's a, a, a what do you call it, mnemonic, okay? Is this included within alchemy, by the way? Uh, it is. Good. <laughs> I'll be picking up a copy after. So, so the five things are SCARF stands for S-C-A-R-F, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, which I would replace, he calls it relatedness, I'd call it reciprocality, actually, just for... And F is fairness. And we have kind of mental modules that process those things. Status, you know, if you diminish some of the, the moment I became closest to quitting Ogilvy in the 36 years I've been there, I'm not making this up, I'll tell this story just because how amusing it is, okay? Where I really fucking lost it. So I was the vice chairman of the company. I'd been there for 30 years, and my phone broke, and I had a Samsung Galaxy S8, okay? and the, and, and it broke. You couldn't charge it, okay? Uh, so it was useless. So I just said, can you just replace my company phone, please? Okay. And I quite like a Samsung Galaxy S10. I think 10, I just can And they gave me a refurbished Samsung Galaxy S7. Okay. Now, I, you know I know this is actually trivial. I can afford to go and buy my own phone. Okay. This is, you know, there was some bloody, you know, spreadsheet incel in the IT department who basically goes, "Oh, I can finally get rid of that cheap phone we've been, you know, I've been wanting to get rid of." I bet he's awarded himself a Samsung Galaxy S ten, right by the way. But there's some spreadsheet incels lurking in the IT department who goes, "Oh, right, brilliant, okay, let's reuse these phones, right?" And I kind of go, "I asked for a specific phone. Not only have you not given me that phone, you give me a phone that is markedly shitter yeah. than the one I had before." And it was now obviously I know it <laughs> ha- happily because I know of the work of David Rock. I was able to actually uh, counterbalance my own emotional reaction. I just went out and just hand that back, and I wouldn't bought a phone, right? <laughs> but it was extraordinary how angry that made me, just viscerally. Even though, in terms of my conscious mind, I realised it was a trivial thing, you know. See, certainty, you know. Actually, there is a value in continuity of employment and 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 you know reliability of employment, not just remuneration but but those sort of certainties really really matter to people you know mm. autonomy is really really i mean certainty, brilliant really, the, the example i always give with uh, certainty is um the uber map we don't want the cab to turn up quicker we just want to know where it is i always use that as a piece of psychological that's a psychological moonshot it's a game changer okay and suddenly you go oh look he's stuck at those traffic lights uh, i'll have another pint and it doesn't change the quantity Of time spent waiting, but it changes the quality of the waiting time. And it does it much more effectively. It's very difficult to change the quantity. Mm. Changing quality is often quite easy. Mm. That's why high speed two should have been how do we make this journey amazing, not how do we make this journey fast, Mm. right? The laws of psychology are much more malleable than the laws of physics. Okay, so that's certainly autonomy if you start telling me there's a travel policy or you can only have your clothes dry cleaned on a business trip for stays of six nights or more, basically anybody who has any kind of creative mindset either finds a way to game the system or ignores it completely. Okay. So autonomy is essential actually to enable people to make intelligent, contextually informed decisions. Mm -hmm. And now, now the point about autonomy is that, It's very difficult to legislate for things universally, and people at the top are always trying to do it. They want everything to be certain, and they want everything to be cut and dried and clear-cut and unambiguous. Mm. Actually, the best way to solve that problem is to give people on the ground enough autonomy to make intelligent decisions according to the situation they find themselves in, Mm. whereas hard and fast rules don't have that contextual awareness. Now, the problem is that businesses love automation not because it's good but because it's cheap, and that's the second risk of ai one risk of ai is that it's unbelievably clever and we end up being slaughtered by hotlight drones which decide to take over the planet the other possibility with ai is that it's actually a bit shit but companies use it anyway because of how cheap it is yeah and you know so you know you can uh, ibm actually tried it they tried writing phishing emails with uh, ai and they weren't as good as the human ones they particularly they didn't really they didn't really achieve kind of empathy in that sense, um, they, you know, which you probably need for a good con. But there is the worry that with endless experimentation, the phishing emails get so good they're dangerous. That's one risk, okay? The other risk is that, you know, marketing get, marketing done by AI is actually a bit crap and a bit sameish and a bit wallpapery, but the companies are so excited by their cost saving and the media companies also love th- love not spending money on creativity. So that we end up effectively surrounded by not very effective, utterly charmless wallpaper advertising. You know, there, there are two. You know, there are two risks here. One of which is it's too good. You know, imagine what a really powerful marketing thing could do for, say, gambling. As I knew it would be, Rory. It's been an utterly thought-provoking, and I kind of want to do.
0: You might hate the phrase, mm. but I feel like I want to do a scarf audit. Of course. On our operation it, 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 no, no, no. itself, which would be, yeah. be a great, yeah. a, a, a great, great thing off the back of this. Um, you've mentioned quite a few things, books wise already. Yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to ask that painful question. If there's one book, of course, Alchemy's. Well, off the back of this conversation, I'm going to be picking it up for sure. It sounds like an excellent my next flight. I think you like Most I, people
1: seem to enjoy it uh, to a surprising degree. Actually, it has a much <laughs> wider audience than I anticipated, mm. which is great. But out of, uh, out of all the other books that you've read, has there been one book that you would say has been the most impactful for you? There have been lots. I'll mention the works of Nassim Taleb because they'll be familiar to some of your listeners as a way of rethinking how you look at the world. Fundamentally, most creativity, the most successful creativity is not actually additive. It's subtractive. It's the abandonment of an assumption. There's this assumption that X must mean Y. So creativity often actually involves removing something, not adding something. And I think the best forms do. You know, I always joke that, you know, there was always an assumption in uh, carbonated beverages that a soft drink had to taste nice until Red Bull came along. And someone found the conditions under which that assumption doesn't hold, which is that if you promise the product is kind of medicinal or psychoactive, tasting weird isn't a bug. It's a feature. Yeah. Right. So any of those books, the best the best source of all has been evolutionary biology, everything through, even though I massively disagree with them on lots of things. Dawkins is a brilliant writer, and you should read Dawkins. There was a book called Full House, also called Life's Grandeur, depending on whether you're in the US or the UK. They called it Life Stranding in the UK because, bizarrely, the the American publisher thought that British people didn't know about poker and wouldn't know what Full House meant, okay? Uh, Don't don't ask. Um, But that's by Stephen Jay Gould, who's widely despised in the evolutionary biological community for his slightly weird ideas. But it's nonetheless a fascinating read in making you realise that you know, with Nassim Taleb, it's effectively the normal distribution doesn't govern things anything like to the extent we believe, and so therefore pursuing an average is often a catastrophic policy. The, the very act of aggregation and averaging is actually damaging more like more often than it's illuminating. So that's Taleb's huge, you know, absolutely huge contribution. I suppose what I've done in alchemy is to say don't necessarily try and solve the problem for uh, solve the problem psychologically. You know, try solving the problem psychologically before you try solving it technologically. There's a great phrase which someone used, which is like, you know, the world's three humiliations, which is uh, Copernicus, you're not at the center of the universe. Darwin, you're not a creature of God. You're just a bald monkey, right? And the third one there would say is Freud, which is actually most of that shit you have on in your conscious mind isn't really in the driving seat anyway. I think anything that is effectively that... There's a great book, actually, called Customer Copernicus by a really, really smart guy. And that's effectively most businesses institutionally start to look at the business from the top down and from the the balance sheet down, not looking at it from the customer up. And that the act of doing so... Well, Amazon have done so well. That's why Amazon have done well. And and by the way, even they haven't done it perfectly. But take an idea like Amazon Prime, okay? Okay. That's a really insightful but also empathetic idea, which is that people don't mind paying three pounds for delivery once a month. Ten people don't mind paying three pounds for delivery once a month. One person really minds paying three pounds for delivery ten times a month. Okay, we need to have a solution to this problem. Amazon Prime. Everybody except Bezos hated that idea, by the way.
0: Rory, wonderful, thought-provoking stuff. I could go on for hours. Um, Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and do share with others in your network. Rory, until next time, many thanks. Thank you very much, Pete. Cheers. Thank you.